Hello everybody, Sunday Store, a disallowed try, a penalty try, a red card, two yellow cards, some glimpses of brilliance, but most importantly, four vital points for Sale, who laboured to a 25-15 victory over La Rochelle in the Champions Cup. On face value, it was a great result for Sale in their first Champions Cup game at the AJ Bell in three seasons. However, the Sharks' inability to kill the game off conclusively and a lack of a tri-bonus point has led to some accusations of a slightly hollow victory for Sale. My name is Lewis, welcome back inside the Shark Tank and joining me to discuss one of the most bizarre games in recent memory is my co-host Alex. Alex, how are you? I'm very well, thanks mate. It was a bit of a mental game yesterday, I can't really start to explain it, but um, we'll try and break it down, won't we? But I'm not sure we'll ever be able to fully work out what exactly went on at the AJ Bell yesterday. No, it's going to be exceedingly difficult just because of the sheer volume of events that sort of took place. And actually, what we're going to do is we're going to go through the game chronologically and try and sort of frame the discussion around each event as it happened to try and sort of give um, a holistic view of the game. Because I don't really think you can tell the story of the game without breaking it down into each individual moment. So crazy (laughs) was the game on Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. It was just, you know, so many things happened and none of them seemed to make any sense. And when you put it all together, it, it made even less sense. But there we are. Well, Terrell, before we sort of get, get into each key event as it happened, um, can I just get your thoughts very briefly on sort of a, a summary of the game? You know, like I said off the top, you know, 25 points to 15 win, no losing bonus point for Lara Show, which could be very important. Um, no try bonus point for sale, which could also be, you know, quite important. You know, where where do you sort of stand on on the outcome of Sunday's game? Good win for sale or slightly hollow? Should have done better. Um, good win, but should have been a bonus point win. And I think you know when you factor in, the f- we were playing against thirteen men for forty minutes of the game, in essence, with one red card and two yellows. Um, really should have should have put them to the sword and should really have had. Um, a try bonus point. And I think it was just a bit of a lack of accuracy and a bit frenetic at times. And that contributed to a great spectacle, but not necessarily a great rugby performance. Um, so I think for the neutral on BT Sport, quite a good experience. As a sale fan, um, always happy with the win, obviously, but a bit more frustrating from my point of view, um, just because of, you know, I think the game was there for an absolute battering of La Rochelle. I think they're a good team and I think we did play well. We started really well. But I think we left a bonus point out there um, and, you know, a bit more accuracy, a bit more fluency, um, a bit more sort of um, structure in our play. And we'd, we'd have had five points. But at the end of the day, four points from a Champions Cup game. I think it's the first time we've won one in a hell of a long time from my memory. So um, pretty good result for me, I think, overall. What about you? Yeah. I, I, I definitely agree with, with, with all those points. I think, you know, after the game, we sent a few tweets out. It did feel like a better team would have killed the game off a lot sooner and a lot more definitively. Um, and I think it was a good sort of representation of the fact that Sailor are still, you know, quite a way away from being the finished product. The pieces are there, the personnel are there. Now that we've got De Klerk and Curry back as well, you, you can really see the, the the full sort of body of that that core twenty three man squad really starting to emerge. But it does feel like we're still a bit off the ball. Things aren't quite clicking yet. And I think if we played this game six months down the line, if if you know everyone's healthy and the team's consistent in that period, I think we could have easily put fifty points on them. On Sunday, I think we kind of saw the fact that this, this new iteration of sale is very much still in its learning process. Um, and it is a bit disappointing. We didn't get that tri-bonus point, but at the same time, a good four-point win over another team in your Champions Cup pool, especially a good team like La Rochelle, is nothing to sniff at. And that sort of dichotomy in, in viewpoints has sort of come across quite well in our three-word reviews this week. I think this actually might be uh, the, the most we've ever had um, for a game. Um, given that we were well over 50 um, from just uh, just Monday and Monday afternoon alone. Uh, and obviously we wanted to get you, the listener, to sort of feedback on, you know, what, what how you saw sales performance on Saturday, on Sunday. And unsurprisingly, there's a lot of uh, a lot of controversy and a lot of dissenting opinions. Uh, so traditionally twisted events, uh, missed easy bonus, Karen Duck, better on Twitter, peak thinking, stuttering sharks succeed, 
Jonathan Gibson tried too hard. Uh, Trevor Bailey still not clicking. Joe Russell needed bonus point. Phil Adcroft bonus point missed. Tommy Teapot calm down Faf and Tom at Thomas Lee's still no flow. Um, let, let, well, before we get into the minor issue of the game, just really quickly. You sort of mentioned it, Alex, that Sale didn't really play with, with a lot of structure. And that's kind of something that's coming across here in the fact that Sale didn't play probably at the best in terms of attacking performance. And that resulted in not getting the bonus point. How important do you think that that sort of lack of bonus point might ultimately be uh, in terms of the final standings in our Champions Cup pool? Yeah, it was a weird one. I sort of, uh, as the game was going on, I was sat there going, we need a bonus point win from this. We need a bonus point win. And then at one point, I just went, well, it doesn't matter because we're probably not going to qualify anyway. Um, and if we do, we'll only get battered in the quarterfinal. As, as good as it would be to get there, I think we're nowhere near a sort of European Champions Cup semi-final team, are we? Um, we're probably not really that near a quarterfinal spot when you look at our group. Um, so I think it would have been important. Um, it would have been a really good morale boost, really good start to the season in the Champions Cup after, you know, picking up a point away at Glasgow, which is no bad thing overall. Um, but, you know, down the line, two home, two games at Exeter who are looking really good. Um, we then got to go away to La Rochelle. Uh, I think um, it is one of those where we were allowed high expectations and, you know, um, we're allowed to get excited. But being realistic, looking at where this team is at at the moment, um, is, you know, a bonus point going to be the difference between us qualifying or not? Maybe, but is it going to be, you know, we're still miles off being a Champions Cup team um, in terms of being able to compete in a pool. Um, so I, I think, yeah, it it would have been nice to have, but my sort of fundamental view is that this is a development season in the Champions Cup and the more important thing for us is getting a sort of steady foothold in the Premiership and being able to compete in this tournament, but we're never going to win it. So, yes, it would have been nice, but to me, it's not the end of the world. I don't know. I think there will be people out there, though, who go, we should be ambitious and we should be aiming to top the pool, which I completely, you know, I, I completely understand. But just for me, I think this is a season in transition. So a bonus point is not the be-all and end-all. You see, yeah, I mean, that's interesting because I, I actually think that that's a little bit overly pessimistic. And I think, you know, one, I think this is a team that has enough quality to get into the knockout rounds. And then from, from there on in, it's basically, you know, a one-game shootout uh, for the last couple of rounds. Um, I don't necessarily think Sale are going to be, you know, a genuine challenger for, for the title this year. Like you said, Alex, it's going to be very sort of developmental, finding our footing. But, you know, it, it is a case that we should be striving to at least qualify for the knockout rounds. Um, but I think that, that that's a, you did make a really good point there, where it's actually... A try bonus point with the way we're playing at the moment isn't going to make the difference between us qualifying in second or qualifying in third. It kind of already look uh, or not qualifying in third. It does look like Exeter are going to be the team to beat in in our pool. But I think what is really uh, what's a really salient point is the fact that as it stands, we are probably not going to to qualify um, or at least you know got get past the quarterfinals or whatever, unless our performances improve dramatically. And if our performances improve dramatically, then that's going to be the difference in terms of getting us out of our pool and into the knockout rounds rather than a tri-bonus point uh, on, on Sunday. Would you inclined to sort of agree with that? That we're, we're not necessarily going to get, you know, we're not going to push through into knockout rounds unless we see an uptick in performance, by which point the bonus point might not matter. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I think that's a really good sort of, that's probably more like what um, what I'm actually thinking. I probably didn't express it very well, but I, I completely agree. I think we've got to change our performance if we want to get to knockout rounds. Um, yeah, we, we're not attacking well enough. We're defending well. Um, I think our defence was really, really good on the weekend. I think, you know, you look at La Rochelle's tries, um, and actually, you know, the first one is down to a bit of a, a fumble and the game gets loose. And that is a poor individual bit of defence. There's just a big gap there. Um, but it's it's sort of the system was working. It's just the ball being dropped, you know, sort of um, messed up the system. So I think the defence is there. I just don't think the attack's there. And you are right. If we improve the attack, we'll get into the quarterfinals on merit because we are we are good enough as a individual collection of players, if that makes sense. You know, I think we are more than capable of competing with Glasgow and La Rochelle. And I think we could easily compete with Exeter. They're just way ahead as a team. But individually, we have got the quality. I mean, Christ's sake, we've got a World Cup winner, a World Cup finalist, um, a load of absolutely great players dotted throughout the team. 
but we're just not there as a collective yet. And I think you are right. If we get that collective, we'll get there on merit. If we don't get that collective, we won't make it on merit. And a bonus point isn't going to be the difference between that. You know, we we snuck our way into this competition. I don't want us to be sneaking our way into quarterfinals and stuff. I want us to get there on merit. And, you know, we've got to change fundamentally our performance and our, I think especially our attacking game if we want to get there. Absolutely. Well, that, that sort of uh, attacking um, disconnect and, and sort of lack of structure is definitely going to come up a lot now as we sort of go into uh, the game in a little bit more detail. So let, let's start with, you know, first key event of the game, <coughs> a try for, uh, you, pardon me, try for Roman Yanzi van Rensburg after seven minutes. Um, right from the kickoff, sale, the ones bringing the pressure, a lot of good possession, a lot of good phase play. And in the end, you know, Five, you know, five meters out. It's a great call for McGinty uh, for De Klerk to pass short side. McGinty, I think, does a really good job of taking the ball to the line, uh, drawing his man, and then it's a really simple pass for Van Rensburg to, to to basically just drop over the line. Uh, obviously, on the score sheet, it'll be go down as Van Rensburg's try. But I think in in this instance, I think the the, the key the key play here. Is, is that try assist from McGinty, who I think it, it was fundamental to sales for a score of the game. And I think he did a great job of actually showing that sort of uh, attacking um, ambition that we kind of want to see a bit more from him about getting the ball at pace, taking it to the line and then finding uh, the men outside him. Uh, Alex, what did you make of that first try? Yeah, I thought the first seven minutes we started absolutely brilliantly. I think it's some of the best rugby we've played all season. We just looked sharp. We were moving the ball well. I think the AJ and Rob Dupria sort of 10-12 axes actually meant we were getting the ball wide, shifting it into people's hands. Um, you know, I, I think that was a really, really good start to the game. And when we scored that try, you thought, well, I, I thought, well, we're really looking good and we could do something today. And then after that, I think their try disrupted us a bit because we'd been on top and they were sort of attacking and not really going anywhere. And a fumble of the ball, but we'll come on to that um, in a minute. Yeah, I thought it was just really accurate, really good play. Um, you know, moving the chains pretty well. The energy that Faf brings is is there to see. And, you know, the change of direction is great. It's sort of brilliantly disguised because he really does look like he's going. And then he just flings it out to McGinty. They, they don't have time to realign. Um, as you say, McGinty draws the man well. And, and you know, you're not stopping Rohan Jansen and Rensburg from there, much as you're not stopping Denis Solomona from a metre out. But again, we'll come on to that one. Um, but yeah, I think that was... You know, that, that was a really good first seven minutes and I was really optimistic. And then, you know, you come onto their try and and to me, it was just a dodgy bounce of a ball from a spilt pass um, just created a gap in our defence, you know. And, and I think it is a very strange one to concede. A great bit of sort of pace by Ratters. But to me, I, I was, you know, I wasn't gutted about conceding that first try because... I think overall we'd looked so good up until then and we'd looked in control that you go, sometimes these things happen. The ball bounces the wrong way and, and they find a gap and that's their try. Um, so to me, I, I thought, you know, even after that first try, I thought we were, we're okay. We were still in control. And that first try and the build-up to it was part of that, I think. But what were your thoughts on that, that Ratter's try? Because to me, it was just a bit of a, a freak and a one-off. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And, you know, Serrato scores after 19 minutes, at which point Sale had, you know, the majority of possession, you know, they, they were sort of controlling play very well. I think this this sort of moment sort of characterises something I've noticed quite, re- quite recently with Sale's defence is that actually we're a very good defence when we're facing a structured attack. We do very, very well when teams are running set plays. We know when to jump out of the line. We know when to sort of back off from that team's play in front of us. One of the things we do struggle with a little bit, and I think this might be an issue with the lack of pace in our pack, uh, relatively speaking, is that when the ball goes loose and, and it becomes broken field play, we really struggle to defend. And, you know, you saw like in the in the Wasps game with Kira Biggie's try, it all starts because there's no set move. You know, sales defensive line doesn't get a chance to get set. We don't have our players lined up against the opposite numbers that they want to be uh, up against. And, you know, Wasps are able to keep the ball alive and, and keep moving and, and sort of beat our players one-on-one. Kind of the same thing happens on, on Sunday with Ratter's try. You know, we actually were defending really, really well against a structured attack from La Rochelle. The issue was when the ball goes loose, we're a little bit unlucky not to recover it. It comes to Rattes, and all of a sudden, there's just a big gap in our in our defensive line because the the play has been broken. That Rattes can just sneak through, and we said last week, you know, he's one of their danger men. He's very sort of elusive, very sort of mazy runner, bit bit like Mike Haley, um, you know, sort of was and is for Sale and Munster. And he's the sort of player when he sees that gap, he can sort of like 
he can sort of move through it and then he's got the pace to sort of get away from from our cover defence. So I thought kind of kind of highlighted an issue that I think has been symptomatic of, of sales defence this year is that we're very good against structured play, but we kind of struggle when the ball gets a little bit loose and the, and the game gets a bit looser. And, and I don't know whether or not we struggle as well because we maybe don't have enough pace in our pack to sort of track down um, any players who are able to make line breaks when, when our defensive line splinters. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think it was most sort of um, prevalent in that Wasps game for the Kibarigi try because you look and we were just defending absolutely brilliantly. They were going nowhere. They were going backwards. And then suddenly Sopalanga steps to the left, uh, puts it into a bit of loose space on, on the left-hand side and then some, they're throwing offloads. And we just, you know, they, it was a great try, but they were throwing it all over the place, loose offloads, and, and we just sort of lost our way comes out to Kibariga on the wing and he scores. And that came from, you know, there were three or four or five phases before that of, you know, them playing the ball up and going backwards and Sopwanga looking like he wasn't sure what he was doing. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, they make one break and it goes loose. And, and as you rightly say, our defence struggles to cope a bit more with that. I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, if teams want to come and chuck the ball about the AJ Bell, they can try their best. And, you know, probably odds on we'll win those games most of the time. Um, but it is a good point. And that... And that I think our defence has looked really good, but you know, as you say, as soon as it, the mo- the one time it got loose um, was that Ratters try. Really, other than that, it was you know there wasn't much going up from when La Rochelle were attacking. It was with Brock James at ten. All he did was ship the ball on. Um, so I think yeah, well right, you know that that loose style of play will probably hurt us. But is that is that a sort of something worth taking in the context of our season? Probably, because if you say to teams, come on, come and chuck the ball about, we've got Denny Solomon and Brian McGuigan on the wings, he'll snaffle any wide passes that you're trying to throw over them. Um, and actually, you know, if the more you chuck the ball about, the, the more risk you're taking and, and we'll just defend your set plays. So, uh, yeah, to me, I think it, it'll be, you know, we're going to struggle against Quinns because they're very good at that style of game, but it will probably help us in the long run against most teams. I think I think it's fair as well. If if that's a byproduct of the defensive system we run, then it probably is better to be a bit weaker on broken field play than it is to be off first phase ball. Um, and I think we sort of showed that actually, you know, when we when we have our defensive line set, when we're letting teams play in front of us, we're, we're pretty good. We don't get beaten off first or second phase ball too too readily. It is only when the sort of field breaks up a little bit that we we seem to struggle. And actually, when you think about how many broken field incidents will be over the course of a season versus how many times teams will get to play off first phase or second phase ball, you, you'd probably accept being weak in, in the former rather than the latter. And actually, we, we, we saw that defence sort of come to the fore uh, for, for sort of the next key event that we're going to discuss and we'll have plenty to talk about here, which is that Ashton disallowed try. And it all starts because Dale, you know, actually push Larachal back off, you know, off their own try line um, you know, really good defence. You know, we were, we were very good in terms of stopping one-out runners. We were very good standing up players in the tackle. And eventually we pushed them back and pushed them back and the ball goes loose and we turn it and we win it back. And then it's this, I don't know whether or not because we're in the Champions Cup, but we see for the first time off off a turnover, off off first phase ball in, in this case, from our own 22, the, the call goes out from, from McGinty again for the clerk to go on the short side. And we just start throwing the ball around. And there's a great loft pass from um, McGinty to Hammersley. I think Hammersley does a great job in drawing his man and setting off Solomona. We get the ball inside uh, to McGinty and then Faf de Klerk's five yards in front of him. So McGinty has to throw the ball very forwards. Um, and then ultimately, even after the clerk has fed in Ashton on the, the final two-on-one for Ashton to go in under the posts. Ultimately, uh, the, the 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 play is called back by the TMO, and the try is uh, is disallowed, but not without some controversy. Alex, we've not spoken about this off the air, so I'm intrigued to, to get your opinion on this. Obviously, Ashton scores the try. Stale know that McGinty's pass to the clerk in the build up was forward. They take the conversion quickly, and the letter of the law says that should stand as a try, even if the TMO ultimately finds that there was a d- indiscretion as part of uh, as part of the build-up. But obviously, in this case, Selk at the conversion, but then the referee does pull it back, and the TMO goes and looks at and and the judges that McGinty has um, made his pass forward, and the play gets brought back to a scrum for Lara Shell. So, so, I mean, what, first of all, what did you make of that that bit of attacking play from Sale? Is it the best we've seen from the team all season? And second, where do you stand on the conversion rule 
law. Uh, yeah, the bit of attacking play was absolutely brilliant. Um, I thought it was really well executed. The ball over the top to get it out of the 22 was good. Hammondsley drawing the man. Um, simple, but really effective. Denny's pace. Um, and then, you know, the support inside, I thought, was really good. It's just a shame that Faf, as you say, was five yards in front. And it was one of the most forward passes I've ever seen. Um, on the conversion thing, the, to me, having looked at it, from what I can see, the letter of the law is that if... You know, a team. So I'm, I've got it up here from the TMO trial because someone tweeted someone, and I was getting uh, interested to see what the actual actual view was. But it's um, if after a team in possession of the ball has touched the ball down in the opposition's in goal area, including after a try is awarded and before the conversion is struck, any of the match officials, including the TMO, will have a view that there was a potential infringement within the list of offences before the ball was carried into goal. Um, they may suggest that the referee refers the matter to the TMO for review. Um, Two ways of looking at that. One is that the conversion was struck and then the review came about, so should have been allowed. The other is that, um, from what I heard the referee say, although I was at the game, so I didn't sort of pick up the interaction between the TMO and the ref, um, the TMO identified it before AJ struck the conversion, but the referee didn't stop AJ taking the conversion. Um, So uh, I'm assuming you watched on TV, so you'll know in what order that happened. Well, it's, it's difficult because in the heat of the moment, you're not really paying attention to, to that sort of thing. But the, what the referee said to Jono and Faf was that the TMO had flagged it before the conversion had taken place. Therefore, he is able to, to sort of pull the play back. That being said, from what I can remember, and obviously I've got my sail blinkers on here as well, I don't recall the TMO and referee having that conversation before the conversion had been taken place. It, it, actually, we didn't see the conversion take place on TV because they're showing the highlights from it. So we didn't really get um, that sort of um, sort of viewpoint on it. So I, I, I'm sort of, I'm torn here because I think the conversion rule is stupid. Like I genuinely think that the referee should be able to pull the play back regardless of whether or not a conversion has been taken because it just does incentivize cheating effectively. If you know you've gotten away with something, you can kick the points and then the other team doesn't get a chance to, to appeal or whatever or have the play sort of reviewed fairly. On the other hand, it is the, the, the rule is still there that if the conversion is taken, the referee has to award the try. And as far as I'm aware, I did not hear of any interaction between the TMO and the referee um, to say that the play needs to be looked at. And therefore, in my opinion, the try probably should have stood. Yeah, I, I think, so where I came down and it was, um, <laughs> it's a really poor bit of refereeing not to stop AJ taking the conversion. Um, and if you, you know, I think it was a bit symptomatic of the referee not being massively in control of the game. Um, you know, there were times when we had scrums five meters out that were going forward, and he was giving penalties and not penalty tries. Um, we'll come on to Denny's penalty try, but he gave it as a penalty without giving it as a penalty try. I think, um, it, you know, I think it was just a really, really poor moment of refereeing, either, you know, because. The thing is, as a referee, you've either got to stop him taking the conversion or you've then got to say, I've let him take the conversion and it's a try. Because that's how it has been. Yeah, I appreciate that the decision was ultimately the right one. And I think you could, you, you know, you could make the case that, it, you know, in the interest of the laws of the game and that's how it should be, the ultimately the right decision was reached. But in the context of the game... I think, would we have complaints as sale fans if the opposition had taken a conversion and it had been disallowed? Yes, of course we would. We sat here going, it's ridiculous, and the law should change. But at the end of the day, that is the law. So, you know, we all sign up at the start of the season to play within the laws of the game as they are. The law of the game is that the conversion is taken and then uh, the try is awarded. So I, I am I am of the opinion that it should have stood as a try. Although, yes, I admit that the right decision was made ultimately, but I think it was achieved in completely the wrong way. And it was just, for me, yeah, as I say, symptomatic of a pretty average sort of control over the game by the ref, um, which is harsh. But I think, you know, we're at the top level of European rugby, so you've got to expect a really good standard of refing. I, I think that's a very fair point. I think it's so important to view this incident in the context of the refereeing decision that was or wasn't made. Because like you said, Alex, it, it's pretty easy for the referee to go and stand in front of the kicking tee and, and stop AJ from, from kicking the conversion. And in a play like that, when there's so many passes going so many yards and it's you know very sort of lofty play, 
you would be you would expect a top class referee to to always view it with the mind that there's a lot happening here and it's it's, it would be unsurprising if there was a forward pass or uh, a player being offside or uh, whatever, what you know, whatever else that that could happen, happening as part of this build-up play. So I think it was very poor refereeing to, to to not immediately, you know, have that conversation with the TMO, have that conversation after the try is scored, uh, and obviously ultimately stop their conversion. Because actually, what's interesting is that AJ doesn't drop, uh, he, he doesn't kick the conversion via a drop goal, which we do see people do sometimes. He actually gets the kicking tee out and, you know, he lines it up and he slots it over. And you do think that maybe a ref thought that you said had slightly better control over the game might have sort of had the foresight to, you know, get in front of that and just and just stop that and, and sort of um, ensure that the sort of very weird rule quagmire that we ended up sort of falling into for, for a couple of minutes would, would uh, you know, would not come to pass. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is the key point that AJ took that conversion off the tee. So we had to get the tee on. He had to set it up. He takes ages to kick as a general rule anyway. Um, and I remember sat there going, kick it, kick it, kick it, because that was miles forward and we needed to kick it and then we'll have the try. Um, so the amount of time the referee had, um, to me, if if you've got you know the TMO speaking in your ear, surely as a referee, the first thing you do is stop them taking the conversion because I thought everyone, you know, I thought it was relatively common knowledge that once the conversion's taken, that's it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it's, it's massively frustrating in the context of the game. Ultimately, it didn't affect the result, but it was the difference between us getting a bonus point and not. So, yeah, to, to come after the conversion is kicked, I do think it's wrong. And, um, yeah, they'll come out and say, yeah, the right decision was made, blah, 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 but it was achieved in completely wrong way. And I do think it's something that needs to be sort of looked at in you know the context of the refereeing of the game. Absolutely. Right. Well, I hope the listeners do enjoy a little bit of refereeing controversy because we've got a bit more for you. In fact, we've got a lot more for you coming up. So obviously the next key event, just shortly after that, uh, that disallowed try was the non-penalty try awarded to Denny Solomona. Uh, so in effect... Uh, Sell um, break uh, down the right-hand side. Uh, the ball goes out to John O'Ross. John O'Ross uh, gets tackled, makes an offload uh, to Denny Solomona, who's a couple of metres short of the try line. As this is happening, the uh, La Rochelle lock, uh, Remy LaRue, um, puts his arm on Solomona's shoulder, effectively pulls him back, which means when Solomona catches the ball, he spills it and he knocks it on. In this instance... Um, the sort of prevailing wisdom was just that it's a penalty try. It's a yellow card for LaRue, which was given, and a penalty try for Solomon because he's, he's clearly inhibited uh, a try-scoring opportunity. Ultimately, the referee only went for the yellow card for the La Rochelle play. He didn't award a penalty try on the, on the proviso that um, the La Rochelle scrum half, uh, Alexi Ballet, um, was covering, and he would have, uh, and because of his presence on the try line, you cannot ascertain that Solomona had a probable try-scoring opportunity. This is a little bit con- controversial because I think actually you go back and look at the play, um, Solomona definitely had a probable try-scoring opportunity. It's not a clear try-scoring opportunity and I do actually in some ways understand why the referee didn't award a penalty try and only awarded a penalty for sale because in terms of in terms of outcomes from that play, there is there is a chance that uh, Ballers would be able to get under the ball and stop Solomona from scoring the try. But in this context, you would expect sort of, you know, well, to be perfectly honest, common sense, reasonable reasonable doubt, whatever you want to call it, from from sort of being applied. And it, it was very clear that this was a, a very clear try scoring opportunity for Solomona. If he catches the ball, he probably crashes over Ballers and gets the ball down. In that context, it probably should have been a penalty try and a yellow card for the Laura Shellman. Obviously, it wasn't given, and ultimately, Sale uh, from the pre- from the following scrums didn't actually get anything out of uh, out of that play. Balance, where did you stand on the sort of Solomon and non-try? Yeah, it's almost the reverse of the last one, and the um, the referee. We've sort of been in the last one. We we were effectively on the right side of the laws of the game, and in this one, we we're on the wrong one. I do think you know there is. I think you have to have that sort of referees are allowed to interpret the laws to an extent in their own way. And I think my issue with the conversion one is that it is clearly, you know, the law says once the conversion is to, taken, that's it. And I think, you know, there's not, it's not really a grey area, that one. Whereas this one is a grey area. The referees interpreted that nine could make a tackle. You never know. Nine could jump on the ball, be held up over the line, and it'd be a scrum towards five metres out. 
Um, yes, to everyone watching, to everyone who watches Denny every week, you know he's finishing that. But, you know, when you can't sort of expect a referee to look at it with, in effect, a sale viewpoint. Um, so I do think, I understand why the decision was made. I think it could have gone the other way quite easily and it could, you know, a different referee might have given a penalty try. Um, I think the the problem with this one is for me that we then get a scrum and say I'll absolutely buy a La Rochelle sort of they don't put any pressure on we push early and give away a penalty um, so that's the issue for me that you know we because uh, I think it goes through a couple more phases doesn't it because the red card happens in between but we let the pressure off for that you know yes it could have been a penalty try but I see the reasons that it wasn't. The, what annoys me is that we then didn't convert that because we should have done because at one point we were scrumming against 13 men and it's, you know, like, come on, you've got to put that kind of chance away. And again, that's the difference between a bonus point and not. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very frustrating that Solomon wasn't ultimately awarded the penalty try, but you can, you can see why the referee wouldn't give it, even if it probably wasn't probably wasn't the right decision, um, sort of objectively speaking. But I agree that it is important to let the referees interpret the laws as well. It's just a shame that in this case, he hasn't favoured the attacking team in what was what was quite clear, um, tries to go an opportunity. We mentioned the red card, and that's obviously the, 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 the next key event. There's a lot happening in this sort of span of about five or ten minutes. Um, a bit of a no-brainer, this one. Nice, easy decision for the referee to make. Uh, uh, the La Rochelle hooker, Pierre uh, Bourgeois, um, getting sent off uh, for eye-gouging Tom Curry. Um, actually following the Solomona um, penalty, so up to the scrum. There's, uh, the scrum goes down, gets reset. There's some handbags. I think it's Tom Curry and Danny Prizo who, who sort of get in the middle of it. And uh, Bourgeois basically reaches over through the scrum and just and you know tries to scratch at um, Curry's eyes or gouge or or whatever it was he was doing with completely inane um, thinking from, from the Larachelle hooker. There's absolutely no doubt about it. He's made contact with Curry's face. He's made contact with his eyes. It's a clear red card. Surely there's, there, there's no other way of, of interpreting, interpreting that incident, I don't think. No, I completely agree. I think it's a nailed on red card. The only thing I would say is that I don't think it was intentional. I don't think it was malicious. To me, it was him reaching over to grab him and his hands go into his eyes rather than him grabbing his eyes. I don't think, I mean, you know, you'd have to have pretty good accuracy to grab someone's eyes from there. Um, other people might not say it like that. I think a red, call, a red card, absolutely the right call. Um, you saw as he went off, we sort of shook hands with Curry, who, who I think realised that it wasn't intentional and wasn't done aggressively. Um, so right call but you know for me I just think we should make the point that from what I saw it wasn't malicious he was genuinely upset and um, he hadn't meant it so I think you know you sort of go yep you've made a mistake you've got the right punishment that's it done and dusted shake hands move on Um, that would be my interpretation of it Yep, slammed the door on his way down to the dressing room as well, which was all captured by the uh, BT Sport cameras. But yeah, yeah, you know, we've we've criticised the ref, but you know, fair play, he didn't overthink this one. He, you know, it's a clear red card instant, and and off Borgery went. And that's obviously when the game really starts to turn. You know, Larish had down to thirteen men, so ultimately get penalised at the, the the resulting scrum. Um, but from this point on, this is now where we're starting to think, you know, we not only should be winning, but we should be winning with a bonus point, especially because actually straight after half time, we do give away a soft penalty and Brock James kicks it to make it a, a, a 10, 10 point apiece game. But on 46 minutes, still get the line out working, which actually works you know, pretty well all game. We get, get the rolling mall off the line out working really well. They, they push forward to the La Rochelle line and ultimately it's Danny Prizo who pulls the uh, pulls the, the mall down. Uh, not only resulting in a penalty try for sale, so the automatic seven points to take the game to 17-10, but actually just after uh, LaRue had come back on um, from his yellow card, uh, Prizo goes straight off and La Rochelle back down to 13 men again. And it's another, another sort of no-brainer for, for the referee, um, I, think it, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it'd been coming, you'd seen in the scrums and sort of in earlier lineouts. And you are right, I think it should shouldn't be all mentioned that the lineout operated pretty well in this in this game. And, you know, um the the mall actually worked really well. Aka is of quite a good mauler from what I've seen. Um and deserved penalty try. I think we probably should have had one earlier, but um got there in the end, right decision, 
for me and a good bit of sort of clinical play from us, which we haven't done that much this season. Um, so, yeah, really impressive for me. What were your thoughts? I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's a, a pretty good view of, in, uh, you know, something we should be trying to build on because it used to be a real strength of ours, that role in the mall, and it's not been quite as much this season. So it's good to see it back. Yeah, I think uh, you made a good point that, you know, Acker is, he's very different to Rob Webber, but he is still a, you know, pretty good mauler. And, you know, our lineup functioned, you know, quite well um, over the course of the game. You know, there's a couple, couple of wobbles here and there, but for the most part, we were, we were okay yeah, in, um, in that context. So, you know, we went 13 of 14, you know, for, over the course of the game. So, so pretty good. Um, and I think from, from that is, you know, it's just really good to see us, you know, finally put, put, um, you know, put a, opportunity away and actually if you know force the referee into making a decision it's a clear it's, you know it's a clear pull down it's a clear um penalty try we're, we're basically over the line by that point anyway so it's really good to actually see us make that man advantage work and obviously get another man advantage um as a result for the next um 10 minutes and and so you know really good from from that side we, we had the we should mention we had the edge in the scrum all game um, obviously helped by the fact that Larry showed down a few men. We had a good, uh, we had a really good lineup. Set piece looked pretty good overall, and that's a really encouraging thing to take away from from this game. And then after that, we're seventeen ten up. We've got a, a, a two man and then a one man advantage for the rest of the game. And this is where the game starts to get really weird. And I want to actually pause for a moment and just actually say. Uh, I want to give some credit to, to La Rochelle because in this circumstance, they're basically hanging on and we're really starting to push forward now, thinking you know a, a try bonus point is in reach given that we've had two opportunities chalked off already and we only need two more to, to get that bonus point. But I thought La Rochelle actually played very, very well in the second half in terms of that sort of bait and switch game and knowing that they were a man down um, for, for the rest of the game, they did very well to play possession and play territory when they needed to. Um, but then they looked to kick out of hand a lot. And what I was really impressed with, I thought of Brock James, who, you know, at 38, a very sort of elder statesman, he had a very, very good game. And you could see that experience come through because what La Rochelle were doing is when they had the ball either in their half or on um, on the halfway line and that sort of middle areas of the pitch, they'd run it for a few phases, they'd get it to James and James would kick. And what Stale sort of fell into the trap of doing a little bit was that we were conscious that we had the man advantage. So we started to try run the ball from everywhere. And because of maybe some attacking sort of structural limitations, you know, some sort of over-eagerness from, from the likes of De Klerk, you know, some, some kind of average um, counter-attacking, we really struggled to actually do anything with that possession. And what La Rochelle did was they held on to the ball, kicked it back into our 22 and let, let us run it back. And we didn't really do anything with that. And what we would spend a lot of time doing is trying to kick back over the top to play territory and try and force mistakes from La Rochelle. And what La Rochelle did very well is retain possession, play it through a few phases and kick it back to us. And you actually look at the territory stats over the course of the game. In fact, I've got it here. Um, in the second half, La Rochelle had 65% territory to, to our 35%. And he actually had 62% possession to our 38%. So we were... Because, because we had that man advantage, we were obviously trying to play a lot of counter-attacking rugby and try and make that man advantage sort of count by throwing the ball out wide. But actually, La Rochelle did really well to sit off us, blitz when they needed to, and force us into kicking the ball um, just to get back into the La Rochelle half, at which point La Rochelle would work it for a few phases then kick it back to us. So I think really important to highlight, I think La Rochelle did a really, really good um, job of managing the game and although we were definitely not firing, and again, a better team probably would have cut them to ribbons a bit sooner, I think a lot of that should be, a lot of our sort of middling performance on Sunday is a testament to how well La Rochelle played territory and played possession. Yeah, definitely. And I think Brock James takes a lot of credit for that because they just managed the game really well, moved it into the right places. Um, you know, we, we didn't seem to be able to cope with sort of that, that game management aspect. Um, so I think you, you do have to say that what they did once, you know, they got they actually played much better with 14 men on the pitch than they had been doing with 15, I think. Um, Definitely. And, and we just sort of bought into the trap, didn't we? we? We we played the wrong sort of rugby. We tried to play loose rugby. We didn't have the accuracy to put people into space. And, you know, we had two men on them for, as I say, half the game and we just didn't take any advantage of it, um, which I think is a bit naivety on our part and, you know, maybe will come with time. But you are right. Um, they managed that whole second half really well and, and 
I think as much as we sort of bemoan Sale for being poor, um, you're right, you have to give them a lot of credit for that. Um, and, and at the end of the day, a 10-point loss with, with the amount of players they had sent off um, was a pretty good result for them, for, for them and, and not a great one for us. But we did say this, you know, it wasn't that good a performance from Sale. And I think in that second half is when it got really poor because we just lost the structure that we'd showed in that first 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, absolutely, and and it was it was funny because as a team we are better defensively when we're playing against a team uh, that that's playing an attacking structure. And actually, ironically, given the amount of talent we've got, we look worse when we try and play loose. We we look better, and I don't know whether this is over coaching or whether or not this is you know trying to bring all these individual talents into one cohesive structure. But when it comes down to individual skill, we do look a bit lost because there's times in that second half where we have three or four man overlaps and De Klerk is throwing miracle miss passes out on the wing to Solomona. Um, and it just kind of kills our momentum dead. Whereas if we sort of played simple attacking rugby through the hands, drawing the man, getting out wide, which is what we did in the first half when La Rochelle had a full complement of players, we would have probably put an additional two or three tries on them a lot quicker. And I think there's, there was a little bit too much excitement. We're a little bit over-eager. I don't think the clerk had a great game. I think, you know, in these periods, you want your scrum half to be, you know, making the simple plays. You know, same from McGinty, same from same from your ball carriers in, in, in the forwards. We really could have put La Rochelle to the sword here. And, and like you said, Alex, we kind of fell into the trap a little bit of just trying to play a bit too much and, and force play. I think it is really interesting as well when we do finally get that, that sort of try to sort of take the game away on 72 minutes. You know, so at this point, we're 20 points to 10 up because AJ kicked a, a penalty a few minutes earlier. But it's interesting that that play, you know, our, our try doesn't come from, you know, good phase play like we saw in the first half. It actually comes because Brock James kicks the ball straight into Ben Curry. Curry kicks it on. Levante Bottia in his own 22 um slides to recover the ball. The ball pops out. Rob Dupree knocks it on accidentally with his foot. And Ashton has one of the easiest tries he'll score in his career where he just has to fall on the ball over the line. And it is really interesting because that's the result of us putting a lot of pressure on them. That's uh, that's actually us, you know, uh, making use of our man advantage because actually when Ashton scores, there's, there's three sale players and, and, <laughs> and one La Rochelle player. And obviously we're forcing James to kick all the time because our defensive structure is so sound. But it is interesting that in a game where we had such a man advantage for so long, it was actually just a bit of good opportunistic counter-attacking rugby that ultimately was what sealed the game rather than simple phase play and, and you know, simple attacking structures. Yeah, it was almost like playing sort of away from home game, wasn't it? You know, you defend, you defend, you defend, and then you get a good opportunity and you take your chance. Um, so, yeah, I agree. You know, we, we have lacked an attacking sort of structure and capability for quite a quite a few games this season and, and this was no exception you know that first try was a good bit of attacking play but the second one was a driving over from a mall um, because our forwards were on top and as we say the third one was just a charge down and then a great bit of play by Tom Curry to kick it on and then a bit of luck with them spilling out over the line so you know we did play well and you, you know even the disallowed try from um, from Ashton was from a turnover and a break so it was sort of almost playing on the back foot and relying on our defence but I think maybe that's something we're just going to have to do this season until our attack sort of kicks in rely on that defence rely on turnovers and then using our sort of individual talents to to score tries so um, yeah it, it was a good try but I think it is you are right it sort of speaks to the fact that we didn't really have much attacking go forward and attacking fluency but instead the, the game winning try in effect comes from a charge down and then a good bit of sort of individual play and a bit of luck and I think that's probably a bit of a summary of the game isn't it you know we were defensive structure but actually to score tries we either needed good individual play or luck Um, and and that's kind of where we are at now so we just have to work on breaking teams down a bit better with our attack I think I think that, yeah, and, you know, we've done 40 minutes here, so we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. But I think that's a great way of looking at the game. This was a decent team performance um, with obviously some significant mitigating factors which affected, you know, the outcome of the game. But this was a game that sort of won by our individual brilliance. It was great performances from the Currys turning the ball over. It's, you know, opportunistic play, you know, from, um, you know, for, again, from the from the Currys and from, you know, Solomona and De Klerk, you know, here and there, you know, some good structures, not great structures. Good bit, you know, Van Rensburg, he had a very good game, but it was all sort of about our, our, 
our, our team play got us on on par with with the La Rochelle team that was you know a man or two men down for a big part of the game and it's just that little bit of individual bonus which kind of spurred us on and ultimately ended up with uh, with us you know producing a, a solid comfortable win and that's kind of why I'm a bit split on terms of how we look at this game because on the one hand yes we should have put probably 50 points on La Rochelle really given our talent and given the context at the same time for us to not play great and for our best players to perform as we've come to expect them to do, and that being the difference between a good La Rochelle team and, and us as a, as a middling team performance, that speaks to just how strong our how strong our squad is, uh, and just you know just how good we can be as a team once everything starts clicking. And, and to beat La Rochelle by ten points, you know, context aside, um, with a with a with an okay team performance, I think speaks volumes to to just how good we will be when everything clicks together. Yeah, completely. I agree. And I think that's a really good summary of sort of where we're at. You know, we're not playing well, but we are getting results. So, um, you know, it's better getting results in the Champions Cup um, than, you know, sort of and not playing well than playing well and, you know, battering people by 70 points in the Challenge Cup for me. Definitely. Let's do some really quick hits then um, in terms of the La Rochelle game. Uh, any, is there any sort of like key key players you want to pick out? There's, there's, there's a couple for me. Uh, Kenny always stays in. I thought I had a really good game with three after I was a bit unsure about him starting there rather than at loose head. But Jean-Luc Dupree had a really good game. Obviously didn't make that much of an impact in terms of the, the, the line out and, and sort of typical lot duties. But I thought he played very well defensively. Did a really good job of holding up La Rochelle's ball carriers, which would which then allowed the Currys to sort of drive through the ball carrier and then obviously end up in a position where they could, you know, put pressure at the breakdown. Um, and I thought he did a really good job sort of in, in his sort of man, man marking and tackling around the rook as well, which you would expect from a, from a typical sort of lock. So I thought he had a really good game as well. Um, and then the other one I wanted to mention was was Rob Dupria. Like, what did you make of, of the sort of first incarnation of Rob Dupria, the inside centre? Do you know, I actually think it went well. I think um, our flaws and our faults in the game weren't down to the fact that he was an inside centre. I, I, I like it. I don't. I think the problem is I don't think Rohan's a thirteen. I just don't think he's got the pace to get around the outside. Um, so I think that's your issue that you, you're never sort of gonna, you're never gonna be able to have that. Um, you know, get, get the ideal sort of scenario because you want Rohan on in the team because he's absolutely brilliant. But I just don't think he's a thirteen for me. But I really like Rob Debrew at twelve. I think it was a really good option. It, it got us moving the ball wide, and I think it made our attacking structure look a lot better in the first sort of ten fifteen minutes, as I said. Um, and he, you know, he's solid in defence. I don't think it really. We didn't see any sort of defensive weakness. It gives us another kicking option. I'm actually a really big fan of it. What were your thoughts? What I really liked about Rob Dupree at 12 was that there was a couple of instances where you saw him making the the outlet pass out to the wing and actually he was passing like a 10-wood from first receiver to second receiver. And what that meant was he was passing flat, he was passing quickly and he was passing with a crispness which allowed Van Rensburg or Hammersley or... Um, Ashton to get onto the ball at pace and that's something that we've really struggled with because I think Van Rensburg is a good passer he's not a great one but he's a very good offloader you know Cameron Path Luke James are not, not necessarily there yet and actually having another 10 in our team meant that once we got the ball out to sort of the middle outside channels we were actually able to move the ball to our wingers a lot quicker and there's a couple of times I saw that and I was really impressed because I thought that is actually exactly what we needed the other thing as well is, you know, he's still a 10. He's, he's got an eye for, for in-play kicking. And we saw that a couple of times as well. He really gave us a nice sort of variety between flat attacking passing out to his wingers or little kicks over the top or little chips to play for territory. So I, I, I'm a big fan. I would actually really like to see it um, when we return to the Premiership as well. Yeah, definitely. I think we look we looked really good with it. I don't, I'd like to see it used more often. You know, it doesn't have to be for a full game, but I do think it allows us to move the ball a bit better. Um, so, yeah, a big fan. Uh, just in addition to yours, completely agree on Jean-Luc Dupree. I thought he had a really big game, best game all season. Uh, Tom Curry and Ben Curry, absolutely fabulous as always. Uh, John Ross making some really good hits. And then I thought Denny had a really good game. I think he's, he looks really sharp and, and you know, looks in good shape. So, um, AJ as well sort of not not his best game but showed flashes of being back to his best so yeah I think um, I think 
genuinely, I think the forwards winners of the game. And I think that's a big shout out to Kearney Hayes and John Luke Dupree in the back row because um, I think they were probably the difference at the end of the day. Yeah, well, and that difference ultimately ended up in a win for sale, which uh, left us all leaving the AJ Bell or turning our TVs off uh, with a very sort of positive outlook on uh, on our Sunday afternoon. And that outlook actually got even better with what happened after the game, where uh, where Steve Diamond in his post match press conference announced uh, a little bit of uh, somewhat surprising news that Stella are actually currently in negotiations with uh, Fiji Rasting 92 uh, and former European Player of the Year, Leone Nakawara. Now, it's a move and an announcement that will draw a little bit of controversy. Nakawara, still contracted with Rasting, has not actually returned to the French club since uh, being with Fiji at the 2019 World Cup. Um, the sort of, I don't want to say excuse, the reason given uh, was that he was helping his family build a home uh, back in his native Fiji, but he is still yet to return to Racing. Uh, and the, the, the sort of news that was sort of given out by Diamond, that seller in negotiations with Nakarara, will obviously cause a little bit of controversy. We might see a bit of a tug of war and a bit of a legal dispute in terms of uh, any signing that Nakarara does make with uh, with sale if that ultimately comes to pass given that at the moment he's still technically uh, a racing player so Alex it was kind of it, it was something that we joked about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago obviously with Josh Bowman and Lou Diego suffering potentially season ending inj- injuries definitely long term injuries um, the medical the, the sort of injury joker the sort of medical allowment outside of the, the existing salary cap will probably come into play for sale Odds on that Sale would probably need to go for another lock for the rest of the season, given how long Beaumont and Diago are going to be out. And we sort of mentioned Nakawara as somebody who might, you know, be in play, given that obviously there's the high-profile off-field stuff happening with Racing at the moment. But I don't think anyone kind of expected it to actually come to fruition. And yet here we are with, with, with Steve Diamond talking to the press before and after the game, saying, yeah, we're talking to him. We'd like to bring him in. What are your thoughts on on, on the sort of little bombshell uh, from from Diamond on Nakawara? Yeah, no, it's very exciting, isn't it? It's um, it's something that would be amazing to see. Um, does work well for us in terms of we we need someone in that position. Um, whether it'll come to fruition, who knows? But I think you know it'd be such a cool signing. What a player! What you know? What a what a sort of uh, impact that would bring to the team. So uh, if it comes off, absolutely amazing. If if not. Um, not the end of the world, but yeah, really exciting. I think, and it's good that we can be in sort of the conversation about these types of players now. Absolutely, imagine it was funny because you said off air, it's like we'll talk about Nakawara, but what is there to say? He's such a talented player, everybody knows um, about his sort of accomplishments. Like I said, former European Player of the Year, uh, an Olympic gold medalist with the Fiji Sevens team. Um, you know, one of considered widely considered one of the best locks and loose forwards in the modern game at 31 as well, and with only with a relatively uh, few amount of professional season under his belt. He's kind of a young 31 as well, so I'd imagine him coming in as sort of a, a short-term impact signing, but obviously someone who still has quite a lot to give, especially given his, you know, given, given his age relative to some other players. Just been absolutely fantastic signing. Makes sense in terms of our uh, exemption, um, um, our cap exemption following the injuries to Diago Bowman. It, it sort of almost made too much sense and it would be yet another statement signing that I think would be absolutely fantastic for the club, both both on field and off field. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the fact that we're here now talking about signing Nakawara, as I said, there's, there's only so much you can say. He's one of the top players in Europe. What more do you want as a, as a sort of... Um, as a fan, so yeah, let's let's see where it goes. But God, it's exciting, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And even if the signing with Nakawara ultimately comes off, he's probably not going to be able to play for sale for another couple of weeks, which ultimately means that he won't be uh, participating for sale uh, in our in our very next game, which is away at Worcester as the Premiership as the Premiership Rugby returns uh, at three o'clock on Saturday. Afternoon. So obviously, you'll have noticed that there's no James with us this week. Unfortunately, um, he's, uh, he's he's under the weather and hasn't been able to join. So we're going to do our best at sort of previewing 
um, this upcoming fixture for sale and giving you a little bit of insight into terms of where Worcester are at the moment and how they're getting on. So Worcester, obviously a team that's sort of yo-yoed a little bit in previous seasons and has had a couple of sort of lower mid-table finishes in the last couple of years. But we've actually got off to a really good start. You know, they're seventh in the in the Premiership with two wins out of four, uh, a solid nine points, very much in that sort of mid-table quagmire that we like to reference so much. Um, but still only a couple of points behind Sale, who were third with 11. So still a lot to play for. And we are relatively early in the season, but the early signs from Worcester have been that they are a team that's probably a little bit better than the sort of lower mid-table finishes that they've enjoyed in recent years, and another team that might be pushing for uh, the top six. So the season uh, to date, I'm just going to get it up now, began with a very impressive 24 points, 16 victory over Leicester. That was followed by two losses on the bounce, 35-16 hammering away at Northampton and a very narrow and unlucky 24-20 loss at home to Exeter in a game that sort of helped a lot of people like myself sort of start to really sort of um, pick up my attention around what this Worcester team um, are doing. That was followed by an equally more impressive, uh, a more impressive performance away at Harlequins, where they actually pulled out a 1914 victory at the Stoop. So this is obviously not the Worcester team that we're, we've been used to in the last couple of years, and they are a team that we could probably stay around the up. And given that last year we went to six ways and were ultimately embarrassed a little bit by Worcester they're obviously in a position now where they will be eyeing a repeat of that and actually a win for sale would represent a significant um, step up from where we were last season given that Worcester are a team that in theory we should be beating if we're going to be um, a top four top six team but obviously a win over an, uh, a Worcester team that's been so impressive in the early going would it be again another sort of step as we continue to build as a team in our own um, in our own season, both in Europe and in the Premiership. So, Alex, I've kind of I've, I've tried to do my best James impression. You know, I've tried to sort of give a bit of context to where Worcester are at the moment. But from your perspective, who are the sort of danger men for for, for Worcester that you'd be keeping an eye out for when uh, when Sale travelled to Six Ways at the weekend? Yeah, it's a, they're a bit of a sort of almost team in transition um, a little bit. They've lost a lot of players over the, over the summer and, and two big ones in Bryce Heen and Josh Adams. Um, but it seems to have sort of invigorated them, doesn't it? Um, I think, you know, they've got Francois Houhard, who is one of the best scrum halves in, in the Premiership. Um, he came off the bench against Castor last, last week. Um, other players, you know, Duncan Weir's playing really well at the moment and um, did a lot of damage against us. Um, and then, you know, you've got some solid players like Chris Pennell at fullback, Ryan Mills at 12. Um, yeah, you know, I think they've got a lot of danger men and, and they're sort of almost in the extra mould of not having any world-class superstars, um, but actually being very, very impressive um, when, they're, when they're sort of, you know, as a team. So I think it'll be a really interesting one to see whether we can, um, whether we can cope with that. And hopefully we can look to, to improve on last week um, you know, it's going to be a really tough game. You know, we lost there last season quite by quite a few, so we're going to have to put in a really good performance. Whether we can do that remains to be seen. But I, I genuinely think we should be, need to be quite worried about this Worcester team because they are not only in form, but they've got you know a lot of sort of momentum behind them. Despite a loss in the Challenge Cup this week and in the Premiership, they're flying high. So um, how we cope with that is is sort of up to us. Um, and you know. For me, I think this team that played this weekend is actually probably in best place to go and play again because it looked like it had flashes of brilliance, but just not quite done it as a, as a whole team. So if we can build on that and get a bit more fluency, then we stand the chance. But it's a really, really tough challenge. And I think it's not the Worcester we, we're used to going and facing. Yeah, definitely. And actually, that that's a really good point in terms of your comparison of Worcester to Exeter. Obviously, the, you know, they play different styles of very sort of different teams, but it is that sort of same sort of squad composition. You know, there's a lot of very good players. There's not loads and loads of standout players in, in the way that you'd expect for a team that's very successful. But it is interesting that, you know, you sort of go through their their team, you go down their squad list and, and compared to years past, there's just a lot of very, very good players in every position. And it's kind of a bit like Sale were a couple of seasons ago. It's kind of a um, greater than the sum of our parts approach. 
and, and that's obviously benefited Worcester very well, especially when they're able to beat teams, you know, like 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 Quinns uh, and Leicester, who are you know perhaps struggling to sort of find that sort of squad cohesion balance. But I think we're obviously going to talk about Sale now. But I think actually you made a great point when you suggested that we should actually keep with the same team because the other danger men that, that I wanted to highlight, there's, there's two in particular. There's Milani Nanai, who's joined over the summer from the Blues in Super Rugby, the, the, who's, uh, who plays at wing. And there's uh, Joe Tal, uh, Talfetti, who's the hooker from the uh, from the USA, who's sort of got a propensity for scoring tries. And it's really interesting that you mentioned keeping the same team because actually you look at those two players who I think are, are some really key danger men for, for Worcester and actually compare who we'd want to line up against them. Well, there's a very clear sort of um, comparison between Talfetti and Akavander Merva, you know, very, very sort of mobile, very sort of uh, attacking minded, very sort of get around the park, loose um, players in that front row. And I think they match up really, really well. And I actually think he, you know, Van der Merwe would potentially line up a little bit better against Talfetti compared to Rob Webber. And the same with Milani Nanai, you know, he's, you know, he's an absolute unit as a lot of like the, a lot of the Pacific Islander wingers are, you know, he's six foot four. He's kind of in that Bryce Heen role actually. And he's rapid. And actually he will match up really well against someone like Denny Solomona, who I think would be a great person to have as sort of a man marking option on him. And I think you go down the sales squad and, and really, there's not a lot to change. You identify these key men. Well, the clerk will match up well against Huhard as well. Um, you know, Francois Venter in the centres, you know, big, powerful South African centre. Well, you know, he would match up very well against Van Rensburg. And I think what we have the luxury of doing now is we can rotate our team a little bit um, to sort of correspond to who the other, the opposition are going to um, roll out as part of their starting lineup. But actually, based on the performances we've seen over the last couple of weeks and the team that we put out last week, I genuinely don't think we'd make any changes because we already match up quite well against Worcester in terms of one-on-one personnel decisions. And actually, La Rochelle might actually be one of our best performances of the season so far. You know, surprised to say, given how sort of middling we were, we actually put together a pretty decent game overall and pulled out a comfortable win. So I'd be really keen to to, to allow the squad to have a bit of consistency and not make any changes uh, when we go down to six ways. Yeah, I completely agree. I do think, you know, there's something to be said for having the same team together. Um, none of that team. Look, I think the two Curries and Ross are in the back row actually work quite well. I was a bit worried with the absence of Dan De Priere. He's been one of our best players so far. Um, but we didn't look, you know, didn't seem to miss his sort of carrying impact. And that was helped by the fact that John Luke sort of shone uh, from that second row. So, yeah, I, I think you are right. Keeping the same team, there's a lot to be said for it. Um, and I just really like the way that, you know, having McGinty and Dupree changes our attacking game um, and we don't lose anything from our defensive structure. So uh, for me, and I know it's sort of boring to agree, but yeah, I completely agree. I think the same team would be would be ideal. Well, yeah, and I think the other thing as well is we, we touched upon it, like consistency is going to be so important for this team. There are so many talented individuals. Our squad is, is, is you know, packed with potential the issue is now is it's about having the same team for four or five weeks so we can allow those structures to bed in both defensively, both attackingly. And I think that it's then when we'll adopt that almost Worcester approach of, or, or of sale teams in seasons past, greater than the sum of our parts. Because at the moment, we are definitely underperforming as a team based on our actual talent levels. And I think keeping the same team, maybe you bring Dan Dupriya back in if he if he's fit, but I would be you know tempted to, to you know to bring him on as a bench if he if he is available. I think it's so important to just let this team bed in, have a you know a good run of games where we're all uh, where there's not a lot of squad turnover, um, you know, play a consistent sort of approach to games, and obviously maybe just tinker around the margins when you need to. But this Worcester game, like I said before, I think is the perfect opportunity um, to leave things in stasis uh, and obviously go to Worcester with, with, with a view on building on a pretty solid performance, if slightly disappointed from, from the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, as you said, it was a disappointing performance, but it also had some of our best moments of the season. In. So let's build on that. And, you know, let's make sure that when we go to Worcester, we go at, at full strength. And I do think, you know, it's, it is a big game. You know, we're third in the table at the moment. We need to consolidate that position because we've got hard games coming up after Christmas. So let's um, let's try and get the win. And I think the team that beat La Rochelle can beat Worcester for me. Absolutely. Yeah, well, we should, I think it's a really good point. You know, we should reiterate that, you know, sales place in the top four is currently very tenuous. You know, we are third, 11 points, but... 
Bath, who were down in eighth, could could potentially leapfrog us uh, over the course of the coming weekend. Um, and and that sort of just shows just just how sort of quickly it'd be for Sale to fall down. And, and we've got to be careful because we're going to go away to Worcester, who you know started the season very well. And this is a really good chance for us to build on our place in top four and consolidate it. Uh, you know, a loss or, or even a draw could see us slip down the table very, very quickly. And this kind of feels like we had a bit of a season starter a couple of weeks ago against Wasp when it was a good win against a team that we should beat. This is kind of our time to sort of build on that and consolidate that performance. And we're really hoping to see Sale make that next step now and push on, um, you know, and keep that, that place in the top four for, for the majority of the season. Right, should we do some predictions then, Alex? Yes, let's. So just to cap on last week, you predicted 31-21 sale, James predicted 28-18, and I predicted 23-8. So a win for James, um, which is good, despite the fact that he's off ill. Um, he can still predict a rugby game. Um, so this week, I am going to say that Sale are going to beat Worcester by 25 points to 23. I think we'll sneak a win. Um, I just have a bit of confidence if we stick with the same team. I, I expect to see a good result. What are you thinking? I agree with everything you just said. Um, I think it'll be Sale 32, Worcester 27. Consistent team selection, you know, the attacking play starting to gel. I think we should have enough, at least on paper, to to beat Worcester even at six ways and and sort of make and sort of make amends for for a pretty disappointing performance there last season. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, on that note, mate, um, I think that's everything, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's only just one little bit of housekeeping from myself, uh, and that's just to uh, reveal a little bit of news. Um, uh, a first, actually, for for the Shark Time podcast. Um, we're delighted to announce that we've actually teamed up with Looseheads. Uh, Looseheads is a rugby ledgerware brand um, that you might have seen being modelled by Sam James, Denny Solomon, or John O'Ross. You know, they're a club that's uh, they're a, sorry, they're a brand that that's you know quite locally based. You know, they've got some good ties to the club, uh, and we started working with them uh, to help support sort of their mandate, which is to sort of raise awareness about mental health issues within the game uh, and help sort of tackle and reduce. Um, the sort of stigma around about talking about mental health issues, uh, especially in the rugby community. Um, and to that end, um, we should say that Looseheads, as part of their as part of their commitment to, to tackling these issues, uh, the sale of, of every one of their products um, helps funds the Looseheads Foundation, uh, where 100% of the donations and the, and the profits made off the products will be used to provide much needed cash uh, for people and charities who can help make a difference in terms of tackling those those issues that we've uh, we've just raised. Uh, and as a special bonus um, for the Shark Time podcast listeners, uh, you can get 15% off all of their products uh, with the code Shark Tank, uh, and that's all in capital letters. Uh, we'll tweet that out after the podcast as well, so everyone's got it down in writing. But it's a it's a partnership we're really excited about. Um, you know, we really appreciate the guys um, you know coming to work with us. Uh, we've hopefully got some fun stuff, you know, planned down the line. Um, I can't say too much at the moment, but we you know we're always sort of looking at ways that we can sort of help, uh, you know, help create some interesting content uh, around both our, our own brand and obviously now the other brands that we work with. But yeah, you know, really good cause. It's a really good brand. Um, you know, the stash is quite nice as well. You know, very cool, very minimalist, uh, and obviously it all goes to supporting a, a you know a great and and worthy cause. Um, so. We hope that uh, that our partnership is something that our listeners can benefit uh, from, as well as the wider rugby community. Uh, Alex, uh, that's absolutely everything for me. Anything for me to finish? No, just um, really good to be working with Lewis Heads, and um, we'll see everyone next week. Hopefully, off the back of a win against Worcester. <laughs>